You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 117 by Rudolf Steiner entitled Deeper Secrets of Human Evolution in the Light of the Gospels. Twelve lectures held in Berlin, Stuttgart, Zurich, and Munich between the 11th of October and the 26th of December, 1909, translated by Christiana Bryan. This is Lecture 1. Berlin, the 11th of October, 1909. These are notes, not a full stenographic report. It's entitled Buddha, and the two Jesus children. For the first time in the last lecture course in Basel, we were able to speak about a subject hitherto not broached within the German section, albeit the Christ event itself has often been spoken of, especially in connection with the Gospel of St. John. By linking this event with the Gospel of St. Luke, as we did in Basel, we were able to explore what we can call Christ's prehistoric life. Here we are dealing with extremely complex relationships. As we heard, a high sun being incorporated itself into the body of Jesus of Nazareth and lived there for three years between the baptism in Jordan and the mystery of Golgotha. This lofty Christ being has often been spoken about. However, an elaboration of what came alive in our souls as the personality of Jesus of Nazareth, who absorbed this high being into himself, can only be attempted when it is linked to the gospel encompassing the history of Jesus' childhood. His development from childhood until the baptism in Jordan formed the main theme of the Basel lectures. Even in this biographical prehistory, we have before us a most intricate web of relationships. The greatest of these, one has to reflect, is far from easy to grasp or portray. The structure of the world cannot be drawn in a few sketchy strokes nor grasped in a few convenient concepts. The personality who received the Christ being into himself in his thirtieth year is a complex entelechy. Only on the basis of the Akashic record can an accurate view be gained as to why the life of Jesus is so diversely presented in the various Gospels. Today something of the life of Jesus of Nazareth will be outlined in order to provide an overview of what was explored in more detail in the Basel lectures. The Gospel of St. Matthew is intended to form part of the lectures for members this winter, potentially also that of St. Mark. Against this background, the Christ event takes on a completely new dimension for us. We hear a small indication of this as an addendum to St. John's Gospel, as a pointer to what can initially only be treated as in outline. The Akashic Chronicle, accessible to clairvoyance, reveals in living picture script what has taken place over time. The nature and course of spiritual communication is generally such that facts from the Akashic Chronicle can be spoken about 
without linking them to a specific record. Only later will it be shown that all this can be found again in certain records, such as the Gospels, which in turn can only be rightly understood through recourse to the Akashic record. Spiritual streams, which had previously gone their separate ways throughout world history, flowed together in Palestine. With reference to the Gospel of St. Luke, one can speak of three spiritual streams that met in the Christ events. One of them is connected with Buddha, another with Zarathustra, and a third embedded in ancient Hebrew culture. These three currents flowed together into a palpable event, which is to say, into the Christ event itself. These spiritual streams are usually spoken of in far too abstract a way. They manifest, in fact, in exceptional beings who have to be constituted in such a way that they can support the confluence of such streams. For this reason, we need to accurately research such beings in relation to their inner constitution. The Buddhist stream reached its apotheosis in Gautama Buddha. He had been previously incarnated, but his incarnation in the 6th century BCE was of particular significance for his being. It was then that he first became what we may call a Buddha. Before this he was a Bodhisattva, a great teacher of humankind, a personality who over time acquired new capacities. We ourselves once lived in ancient Egypt, equipped with quite different faculties from those we possess today. Some of these old capacities atrophied. New abilities were added. Anyone not taking a development such as this into account can gain no objective view of the world. Nowadays, for instance, human beings can of themselves grasp certain logical and moral laws, can use their own judgment to recognize this or that. However, this was not the case in ancient times. In those days, for instance, humans could locate nothing of a moral, ethical nature within themselves and would not have understood such a concept, however well explained in modern parlance. A completely different faculty would need to have been addressed. This is why there are certain axioms of human verity today, such as teachings concerning compassion, teachings of love, which could not have been detected 3,000 years ago. Today an inner voice tells us about the laws of compassion and love. In those days, human beings would have sought in vain for any such inner voice. Instead, human beings had, to put it crassly, to have ideas of compassion and love suggested into them, inculcated into them by evocation. The being whose task it was over thousands of years to cause compassion and love to flow into humanity from higher spiritual regions was that very Bodhisattva who then incarnated in India as Buddha. As a human being in the physical world, he would not have found compassion or love present within himself. However, bodhisattvas would, through their initiation, have risen into spiritual realms where they could be imbued with teachings of compassion and love and could then bring these downward to earth. 
the moment does eventually arrive when humanity from then onward has matured sufficiently to find for itself what was once caused to flow into them. Such was the case with compassion and love. As this Bodhisattva rose to become Buddha, sitting under the Bodhi tree in the 6th century BCE, great and important processes were taking place, not only within him but throughout the world. At that time the laws of compassion and love arose within this Buddha become human. That is to say, a circumscribed exposition of these laws arose in him by means of the Eightfold Path. In that, the Buddha could become aware of these teachings within himself, humanity was endowed with the possibility of likewise experiencing them in future ages. Since then, some human beings have indeed been able, following the example of the great Buddha, to experience this themselves and to live a life that with equal vitality crystallizes such teachings from out of the Eightfold Path. Only when a significant number of human beings have become mature enough to experience what Buddha underwent long ago will these capacities become a fully integrated feature of humankind. This is how, mission by mission, spiritual substance is transferred downward to our world from lofty spiritual spheres. In around 3,000 years from now, sufficient numbers of human beings will have matured enough to tread the Eightfold Path, and only then will compassion and love have become truly incorporated and inherent in humanity. At that point, new events and missions will descend from spiritual realms into the physical world. In antiquity, Buddha enabled teachings of compassion and love to stream into humanity, and now these are alive and working in human beings, Buddha having given them their initial impetus. Once a bodhisattva has mastered his task after some 3,000 years' activity, he becomes a Buddha who has fulfilled a given mission for humanity. What then became of this Buddha, whose mission it was to bring compassion and love to humanity, once he had left his physical body? The name Buddha always signifies a last, final incarnation. He only needed his Gautama incarnation in order to fulfill his mission. Since that time, it has not been possible for that bodhisattva individuality, having attained Buddhahood, to descend into a physical body again. He can only descend as far as an etheric body and is therefore only visible to clairvoyance today. When such a form without physicality is taken on by an individuality, it is called a nirmanakaya. It is the means by which that being is able to carry forward the mission with which it was entrusted as a bodhisattva. In this way, the great Christ event was prepared for by this reigning Buddha, now in Nirmanakaya form. As parents, Mary and Joseph of Nazareth gave birth to a child whose name was Jesus. This child was of such a unique disposition that the Nirmanakaya Buddha could muse, This child is physically constituted in such a way 
that it contains the potential to take humanity a quantum step forward in its development if he, Buddha, would bestow upon it his own bequest. He, therefore, sank down in Nirmanakaya form into that Jesus child. This Nirmanakaya form should not be imagined as an enclosed shape such as the physical bodies we inhabit, but rather that what would otherwise be mere forces have here become exceptional entities. This grouping of entities is held together in higher worlds by the ego, the I, of the underlying individuality concerned, in a similar way to that in which our faculties of thinking, feeling and willing are bound together in us. It is this host of entities combined within the Nirmanakaya Buddha that the clairvoyant sees. Analogies for this exist in nature too. For instance, in the gall wasp, the fore and rear bodies are connected only by the thinnest of shafts. If one imagines this shaft as invisible, one appears to have two separate yet connected entities. Similar connectivity exists within a beehive or a colony of ants. Relationships of this kind were well known to the writer of the St. Luke's Gospel. He too was aware that the Nirmanakaya Buddha was descending into the Jesus child. He expressed this by saying, When the child was born in Bethlehem, a host of angels descended from the spiritual worlds who announced to the shepherds what had taken place. Those shepherds had, for certain reasons, become clairvoyant at that moment. At first the child Jesus developed slowly, showing no outward sign of exceptional qualities that would have indicated a mighty spirit. However, a deep inwardness and soulfulness soon emerged, an animated life of feeling becoming apparent. A clairvoyant would have seen the Nirmanakaya Buddha floating above the child. We are told in Indian legend that an old sage went to Buddha and recognized that in him a bodhisattva was being called to full Buddhahood. The old man burst into tears because he would no longer live to experience the Buddha himself. Asita, as the old sage was called, was reborn and was again an old man at the time when Jesus was young. He was in fact the Simeon of St. Luke's Gospel, who saw before him Jesus on the occasion of his presentation in the temple as that same Bodhisattva, now become true Buddha, and could therefore say, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Thus five hundred years later, the sage saw what he could not have seen until then. If one traces the origin of Jesus in the Gospel of St. Luke and compares it with the Jesus described in St. Matthew's Gospel, distinct differences are noticeable that have been completely overlooked by science. The right conclusion as to why their ancestry differs can, of course, be found in the Akashic Chronicle. They are and must be different. At around the same time as Jesus was born, there lived another set of parents also called Mary and Joseph, who also gave birth to a son in Palestine called Jesus. 
there were two Jesus' children, two sets of parents, both with the same names. One of these Jesus' children is from Bethlehem. He lived with his parents in Bethlehem. The other child and his family lived in Nazareth. The first Jesus stems from the line of David via Solomon. The Nazarene Jesus, on the other hand, comes from the lineage of Nathan, also of the house of David. Where St. Luke speaks primarily of the first Jesus, St. Matthew speaks of the other Jesus child. The child from Bethlehem showed quite different characteristics in his early years from the Nazarene child. This first child was well developed in all outwardly discernible capacities and could, for example, speak from birth onward, even though his words were largely incomprehensible to those around him. The other child, by contrast, showed a greater tendency to inwardness. The Bethlehem child now bore, incarnated with him, the great Zarathustra of old. As is shown, this Zarathustra had bequeathed his astral body to Hermes and his ether body to Moses. His ego had been reincarnated in Chaldea six hundred years before Christ as Nazarathos or Zaratos, and now, finally, as Jesus. This Jesus child had to be taken to Egypt in order to relive, for a while, impressions of surroundings known to him, while inwardly revivifying them. We should absolutely not believe that this Jesus of whom St. Luke speaks is the same individual as the Jesus spoken of by St. Matthew. On the orders of Herod, all children under two years old were to be killed. John the Baptist would have been affected by this decree had not enough time elapsed between his birth and that of Jesus. In his twelfth year, the ego being of the Bethlehem Jesus child, that is, the Zarathustra I, moved across into the other Jesus boy, that is, from age twelve onward, the previous I of the Nazarene Jesus no longer inhabited him, whereas the I of Zarathustra now did. The Bethlehem boy died as soon as this I had withdrawn from him. St. Luke describes this transfer of the Zarathustra ego into the child from Nazareth in his account of the twelve-year-old Jesus in the temple. It was inexplicable to his parents that their boy should speak with such wise authority. He was their only child. The other set of parents, however, had other children, four boys and two girls. Both families were later to become neighbors in Nazareth and would eventually meld into a single family. The father of the Bethlehem family was already an old man when Jesus was born and he died shortly afterward. This mother moved with her children to Nazareth, to the other family. It was in this way that the Buddha, in his Nirmanakaya form, worked together with the eye of Zarathustra within Jesus of Nazareth, Buddha and Zarathustra working in concert within this child. St. Matthew speaks initially about the Bethlehem Jesus in his Gospel. Here the wise magi from the Orient appear at his birth, led by a star to the place where Zarathustra was reincarnating. The End of Lecture 1